I'm turning this evening to Psalm 53 and verse 1. Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable things, iniquity. There is none that doeth good. Our subject will be answering doubts about God and faith. And we cannot do much in the short time available to us, but we shall try to look at some doubts. These seem to be very strong words. The fool, it's King David who wrote this psalm, very similar, almost identical to his 14th psalm. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Well, I'm going to first of all try to address very briefly the idea that there is no evidence for God. We hear it often these days. There is no evidence for God. In fact, usually it's put uh, rather like this. There is not a scintilla of evidence to support a divine being or God. Well, that's a, a Latin word. It means a spark. It refers to a tiny spark, not the tiniest spark of evidence. It is an astonishing thing to say. And we're going to look at that and a few other points this evening, time permitting. But first of all, what the word of God says here, the fool hath said in his heart. Now the Hebrew word translated fool uh, really comes from the idea of something which has fallen away, like a, a flower which has died and is drooping and falling. That's the idea behind this particular word fool. There are various words fool in Hebrew used in the Old Testament. And this one is perhaps the most gentle, in fact. It refers, well, to people who have fallen away, faded away from any spiritual interest, any spiritual seeking or activity. And it means the fool, the person who's drooped away. And he says something in his heart, which means, referring no doubt here to his affections, his emotions, rather than his whole soul. The Hebrew word is the word for soul. But heart is good translation because in its context, this is something that's going on in the heart. I'm very attached to the idea that there is no God. I feel this very strongly. It's my inner conviction. It's what I want. I've made up my mind. I, I'm not just a neutral person or an inquiring person. This is in my heart. I feel this. I have some degree of antagonism to God. That's the idea. The fool hath said in his heart. It's deep in him. It's fixed there. He's got an enormous prejudice. There's something driving him. There's something behind this. 
Perhaps it is that he wants uh, moral liberty. He doesn't want a God. He doesn't want to be dictated to. Perhaps it's something like that. So it's in him. It's in his affections, in his heart. In fact, uh, we could uh, point out here, and if, you, if you've got a King James Bible open, you'll see this. The fool hath said in his heart, then come the italic words, there is no God. The Hebrew doesn't have the there is. The translators have put those words in to help us. Actually, we could do just as well without them. The fool hath said in his heart, no God. And that gets the point across much better. No God. Supposing you were to talk to somebody about uh, spiritual things, about God, and you make a point, and suddenly the person to whom you're talking holds up his hand and he says, no God, I don't want to talk about God. That's a no-go area for me. That's the idea here. The fool, the person who's fallen away from any spiritual concern or interest, but instead has developed in his heart a kind of passion against God. He doesn't want God around. He says to you very firmly, as if he's putting a notice up, no God, not here, out of bounds. We don't want God in our discussion, in our conversation, in this place. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Why does King David, under inspiration, call him a fool? Well, yes, not that the man or the woman is necessarily a fool in everything. So many of the militant atheists that we hear clamoring for attention today are very brilliant men in their fields. They're men of enormous accomplishment. They're men equipped with very good minds. They've won considerable laurels in their fields. They are certainly not in general terms fools. But if they say, no God, however brilliant they may be, this is the point, they are uttering something very foolish. And even the cleverest person is capable of being very foolish. Why the world is full of this, we see tragedies on every hand. We're very clever people have made a big mistake and done something very foolish. And down they've tumbled from their eminence and from their authority or from their position. Because the brightest and the best are capable of foolishness. No God is foolish, says the scripture. And for reasons that David and others will give. But before we get on to them, corrupt are they? Corrupt. And that interests, that translates the uh, verb to decay and turns it into a, an adjective. Corrupt are they? Decayed. And have done abominable iniquity. The word abominable in the Old Testament very often refers, and I'm sure it does here, to a religious abomination. Most of all, it refers to, say, the offerings of idols 
or the desecration of the temple. If a pagan were to enter in and desecrate the shrine and do something dreadful upon that, then that would be an abomination in Old Testament language. In what way has the person who banishes God done abominable iniquity in that very religious application of the word which the Bible has? Well, he's thrown God out of the shrine of his heart. He will not worship. He will not even acknowledge God. He will not honor him or revere him in any way, let alone obey him and seek any kind of relationship or union with him. He's dethroned God and he's brought into his heart other things to worship. Perhaps wealth, perhaps fame, perhaps objects and aspirations in this world. And they're occupying the throne room of the heart, which is God's by right. So David uses the word abominable in that sophisticated religious sense. They've desecrated their hearts by giving it over to something other than God. That's the idea. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. This is universal. This is throughout the human race. Unconverted, we say, no God or no true God who is holy and just and to be worshipped and from whom we need forgiveness and salvation. No true God. It's a universal sin of mankind. Of course, people are capable of doing good, some good in their lives. Everyone is. But everyone at the same time is polluted and tainted with this hostility to God and this wanting everything for ourselves. God's heir, God's provisions, all the gifts he's given us for our pleasure, for our determination, our use, spending on ourselves, no God. That's the idea here in Psalm 53. And it's foolishness, the universal state of mankind. And so the psalm goes on to say it results in great ignorance from, of God, no turning to God, and deeds, and no good, no holiness, no worship, no study of God, no obedience to God. And many people defend themselves by saying, or taking up the chant, there is no evidence for God. How often do you hear it? No evidence for God. It's an amazing thing. We'll just touch on a few things this evening. What about the universe, friends? What about the greatest thing you can imagine? The extent, the immensity of the universe. As far as any scientific instruments can trace it runs 
the vastness of this universe. Our world, life, human beings. What is it all but evidence? Evidence of what? Evidence of a creator. Evidence for a designer and for a mind. Evidence for a spiritual, a divine being far greater than anything made from whom things can come and be created. While we look at the world as we know it, and it doesn't take a scientist to understand that nothing comes from nothing. How did it start? How did it begin? You either believe that it is a creation of a divine being, of a supernatural God, or you believe that somehow the universe, matter, force, is eternal. And what's that but a kind of God? The alternative is between an intelligent, relational, personal God and an unintelligent, non-relational, everlasting force of some unknown description who is material or which is material and which is eternal. If you say there is no God, you're left with something even more imponderable and unfathomable and unverifiable, an everlasting eternity of things causing other things, causing other things, causing other things. No evidence for a creator, no evidence for an everlasting state of matter, no evidence for any alternative. The alternative is an inanimate God or a living God. That's the choice. And you see, you work yourself up because it's in your heart not to believe. It's in your feelings. You don't want God. They deny God from the heart. They're driven not here by the mind, whatever they think. However brilliant they are, they're driven by something in the heart. They don't want him. If you're driven by that, you're driven to something utterly weird and imponderable, an inanimate, everlasting, material god of substance. The universe is a vast evidence for God, for a mind, for a creator. But it isn't all that there is. There are other things too. I'm not going to go through the usual cosmological order of evidence, but to suggest some different things to you for thought. What about the tremendous evidence of the instinctive knowledge of God, which is possessed by all human beings? until we eradicate it consciously and deliberately, intentionally, because it's inconvenient to us. 
What about the instinctive knowledge of God? It's everywhere. It's in ev- Now, militant atheists, they're always having things both ways. They'll use arguments in different directions, not realizing that they're uh, disqualifying their thought processes. And this is such a case. The great challenge is uh, there is no instinctive knowledge of God. Then you listen a little longer and they're telling you, here is the great uh, objection to God. There are thousands of religions. And they're all different, they're saying. And they don't necessarily agree with each other. So how could we possibly know which is right? And the reasonable thing is to say that none of them are right. Yes, but those thousands of religions, wrong as they may be, are evidence. They're evidence of an inescapable, instinctive knowledge of God. There is an instinct for God. Everywhere in the world, throughout history, every corner of the globe, the instinct for God must be satisfied. Every phony who makes up a religious system finds he can drum up followers. Why are people so gullible? Because there is an instinct for God. In an atheistic environment like ours in the United Kingdom, people have been brainwashed to push God aside, told that he isn't there, and they do so, and they eliminate God from their thinking and from their ideas. And then as soon as somebody dies, they say to each other, and it's not just like talk. I've questioned endless people about this. They say to each other about their loved one who's departed, oh, he's up there, she's up there. What makes them still hang on to these things? An instinctive knowledge of God, an instinctive knowledge of a life hereafter, These things are buried deep in the human race. People who never worshipped at all get into some terrible scrape and fearful danger, perhaps in time of war or other such times or times of great sickness. And what do they do? They cry out in prayer. What's that? It's an instinct for God. It's everywhere. And people are saying, there is no evidence, not even a tiny spark. What are these things but evidence that God has planted in the human constitution these awarenesses? They need to be informed, they need to be educated, but they are there. And there's no question of that. To say there is no no God And no evidence for God is a foolishness, dear friends. You can't understand the world without it. I'll come back to the many religions in a few moments. The instinctive knowledge of God, the instinctive knowledge of an afterlife. Everyone has that. Even the atheist keeps it to a small extent. All the famous atheists... They're crazy about leaving some sort of a legacy. That's just what remains of their instinctive knowledge of an afterlife. 
They don't believe it in anymore. They've done away with it. But they must leave something on the record. There is in them this instinct. You've got to leave something behind. You've got to do something beyond your present life. But of course it's an instinct that everyone has. And a great deal of, great proportion of the fear of death which people have is actually fear of a judgment, fear of an afterlife, and what may await them, what may lie ahead. I've heard people who are promoting atheism say things like, well, where is the evidence of God's activity? If there was a supernatural creator God, would he render himself invisible to the human race century after century? Why don't we see any evidence of him? Well, you don't see evidence of him because you won't look at it. There is abundant evidence of the activity of God in the world. And we see, of course, so much evidence of this in the scriptures, in the Bible, where God especially communicates himself and with signs and wonders and mighty miracles to a nation in order to educate the world. Things that were witnessed and seen and recorded as historical events. And then, and I'm just skimming the surface, then you have in the books of the Bible, you have the great prophecies. And so many of the prophecies relate not to the end of the world, but the things that would happen in the unfolding centuries, even in Bible times. And these prophecies have been fulfilled remarkably and amazingly. I give just one line of examples. Is God to be seen active in the world? Well, when there was an Assyrian empire, which succeeded into the Babylonian empire, and it controlled the world, with great the then world, with great viciousness and fury and violence, it was prophesied that God would bring it to an end. It was inconceivable. It wasn't credible, the prophecy, to cynical ears. But that God would bring it to an end, and in a particular way, with details provided. And in due course, the Babylonian Empire unquestionably came to an end in exactly the way that prophets two centuries earlier had predicted. And it was succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was duly prophesied that that would come to an end at the hand of God in a different but special way. And that is exactly what happened as the centuries unfolded. And that would give way to the Greek Empire. And that would end in a particular way and have a particular character. And so it took place. And that would be replaced by the Roman Empire. And that would end in a particular way. And so it did end. And it was replaced, according to the prophecies of old, by the Christian church. There would never be another total world empire after Rome, nor has there been. There have been empires, regional empires, but not total empires. 
and the predictions made of the Christian age and the Church of Christ have been perfectly fulfilled. You see God at work, and at work in a special way, because the great things that he has done were predicted. And they were not things that it would have been possible to predict. But you see, the world of atheists may have many brilliant philosophers and many brilliant scientists, but they don't know these things. They're ignorant of these things. When they quote the Bible and they criticize the Bible, they get it all wrong. They don't understand. A child could answer their charges, and they don't know they're out of their depth. They're not looking carefully or seriously at it. Let me just try to give you one simple example. Uh, if you like, uh, if we can, just by the way, and I should do this very briefly, but I turn to the book of Exodus and chapter 20. And uh, some years ago, I heard a very eminent critic of uh, God and of the scriptures saying that the Ten Commandments disprove all the uh, holiness of God and his uh, good purposes for the human race. What are they, he argued? They are cheap, trivial little measures just to preserve one nation, Israel, and they are against every other nation. And he took the first four of the Ten Commandments and he tried to say that these were just uh, utterances of antagonism towards any other tribe and they had no moral worth at all. Well, it is astonishing the ignorance that people can display in finding uh, criticisms of God and of Scripture. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is wonderful. I am the Lord, Jehovah, the divine initials. We pronounce it Jehovah, the self-existent God who is the source of all creation, all power and all life. That's what the name of God means. I am the Lord, thy God, your defender, your father, if you like, your ruler, your carer, your provider. What a statement. I, says God, am the Lord who gave you everything and who loves you and cares for you and cherishes you as a parent would a child. I am the Lord thy God. Wonderful statement. Do you hear it, friends? God will say that to us if we yield to him and seek him. I am the Lord, thy God. I will be a father to you. I will love you and cherish you. I will keep you and protect you and defend you. I will train you and coach you and guide you. I will help you and bless you and make you happy. All these things are in those great words. I 
will be the Lord, your God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And here's the condition. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and so on. How is that tribal? That God, who is willing to be so kind and so good, should say, here is my condition, that you do not make a block of stone into some sort of a phony God and worship that instead of me and trust that and work up a set of superstitions so that you love that and adore that. I will do all these things for you if you will keep to me and look to me. What is tribal about that? What is attacking of anyone else? Enough of this, friends. It's just a little example. I could go through all the four opening commandments. Some of these people who are so against God and so worked up and prejudiced, they make such foolish statements and they can't see for looking the grace and the kindness of the message of Almighty God. Our time is going on. But uh, I could talk about the conscience, the evidence of conscience. Oh, says atheism, we don't believe in conscience. Conscience is just the programming of, say, a society like the Victorian society, imposing fictitious standards upon a whole community. It's just the tail end of that and people have been taught and taught and taught that these are rights and these are wrongs. And they're programmed to it. You can account for that. There's no such thing as the conscience. But that's nonsense, friends. Every culture in the world has standards. And while there may be some minor variations, broadly speaking, all the great moral codes of all the nations and all the human groups of the world and all religions run along strikingly similar lines. Why is that? Because of the conscience which God has programmed, which is part of our constitution, which is reflected in God's inspired statements of standards, such as the Ten Commandments. The conscience is so easy to prove the existence of. Where did that come from? Let's go back for a moment to chance forces. Way back before a supposed Big Bang, utterly inanimate forces gave rise to something so sophisticated as the human conscience. These things are remarkable. These things call for explanation. These things are evidence. One last thing before I move to conclusion, and it's this. Multiple religions, multiple religions. Constantly this is drummed into us. Because there are multiple religions, thousands of them in the history of the world, the reasonable thing is to say that none of them are right. And this comes very often from scientists. 
Can you think of anything less scientific? I'm confused, so switch it off. Ignore it. Pretend it isn't there. That's an abdication of reason, surely. If you're confronted by a thousand religions, if you want to be scientific, the scientific and the rational and the reasonable thing to do, though it's rather a big task, is to examine all of them. Not give up on everything. But actually, it isn't such a big task to examine all of them. Because you can examine religions really with the asking of relatively few questions. You can say, does this religion have a credible source that we can trust? Some religions were started by crazy people. Does it have a credible source? That will sift out many of them. You can say, is this religion inherently consistent? Does all its, do all its parts agree? Is it something consistent? That rules out vast numbers of primitive and human religions. You can say, does this religion possess or have available to it from its God power? Does it have power? Can it change lives? Can it make better people? Can it make better communities? Does it have power? It's a valid question. Many more will fall at such a question. You can ask if there is one God and he made all things and we're examining religions, is the religion for all people or only for some or only for a strictly limited ethnic group? Is it universal? Many will fall at that hurdle also. Then you can ask, does this religion unite to God? If we believe in an intelligent, personal God, not an inanimate force behind all the wonders and the complexity of the universe, does this religion, this is the test for authenticity, relate us to him. And most religions will fall at that hurdle. They are reasonable questions. They are inescapable questions. And ultimately, they bring you down to one being, Christ Jesus the Lord, the eternal Son of God who was incarnate, who entered into time, who came to suffer and die on Calvary's cross, who came to throw down the enormous mountain that stands between us and God, the mountain of our guilt, the guilt of our sin, because God is holy and he cannot relate to us or bless us or hear us and unite us with himself 
with that mountain of guilt in the way. And there is only one way of dealing with it. God comes himself. Isn't it astonishing? And this is unique to the Christian gospel. God comes himself, enters into flesh and time, lives a perfect and a wonderful life, full of compassionate healings, preaching the grace of God, the free salvation which can be given to all who seek him and ask and repent. And he goes to Calvary's cross and God the Father pours out upon him all the sin, the guilt of those who would ever be forgiven. And he takes the punishment instead of us the kindness and the love and the grace of Almighty God. Why, dear friends, that's the message of the Bible. I could apply the questions I asked to the Bible, but there isn't time. What is its source? What's the source of the Christian faith? What's the source of the whole message of the God of Abraham? and the coming of Christ as prophesied, and his work for our redemption and the saving of souls. It is a revelation from God. And that opens the door to a new, whole new area of proof, the experience of the Christian convert. I seek the Lord. I repent of my sin. I see I'm a desperate sinner condemned by God. I appeal to God to save me and forgive me. And he does. And in doing so, he changes me. And I have the evidence of this. I am a changed person. Now I hate my sin. And I seek God's help to overcome it. And I have a good measure of power to help me. Now I love him, whereas I always wanted to avoid him. Now my mind is opened up and I can discover the treasures of his truth and his plans for me and for the world in the scripture. Now I can relate to him and pray to him and receive answers to my prayers. And my whole life is filled with evidence, large and small, And I hear somebody saying in the distance, there is no evidence for God. And I think, oh, how sorry I should feel for that person. What they cannot see, they have never been illuminated by God, never been converted, never been saved, never been brought into the kingdom, never seen the power of God and the goodness and the kindness of God. Don't listen to that, dear friends. Don't listen to that. Come to him, the God who is there, and he will receive you and pardon you and make himself known to you. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and help us. Deliver us, O Lord, 
from the programming that has battered us down through the years and help us to see what should be so obvious to us, thy hand, thy mighty creating hand, and above all, thy saving hand, the kindness of thy salvation. Bless us now and open our hearts to these things. We ask it in our dear Saviour's name, for his sake. Amen.